0: it's not as well known in mainstream culture because it was by design and function of, of american culture kept outside the mainstream uh... so that was its whole reason for being and i think that's its reason for still being somewhat obscure even in the eyes of of you know really hip music fans who love tons of artists who got their start on the circuit Uno, go,
1: Hello and welcome fellow music lover. My name is Zachary Stockhill and you are listening to Travels in Music, the podcast that shares stories about music from all over the world and explores a musical planet. Thanks for joining me today. When we think about the roots of rock and roll, we generally tend to think about people like Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Buddy Holly. For reasons owing to politics, race, and the various prejudices of historians and music journalists, many of the earliest African-American blues, jazz, and R&B pioneers, such as Louis Jordan and Roy Brown, are often confined to the footnotes of rock history. My guest today is trying to change that. Preston Lauterbach is the author of The Chitlin Circuit and the Road to Rock and Roll, a Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, and NPR book of the year. The Chitlin Circuit is the name given to a string of performance venues, mostly throughout the southern U.S., which was safe and acceptable for African-American entertainers to perform in during the age of racial segregation. The circuit was the incubator for many of the most important rock musicians of the 20th century, including Little Richard and B.B. King, along with a host of lesser-known but no less important early blues and rock pioneers. Still, the history of the Chitlin Circuit is largely unknown, and it is a fascinating history of savvy businessmen, organized crime, female impersonators, scandalous lyrics, and more than anything, incredible musicians. The early Chitlin Circuit represented, to put it simply, rock and roll in its earliest, purest, and possibly most exciting form. In today's episode of Travels in Music, my guests and I go deep into this remarkable story. So I hope you enjoy sitting in on my conversation with the author of The Chitlin Circuit and the Road to Rock and Roll, Preston Lauderbach. Well, I heard the news of rockin' life A night. Oh, Hopefully, my we night. have time to get into your second book a little bit. But the main reason I wanted to talk to you today was to talk about your first book on the the Chitlin Circuit. And the first question I have for you is, and I asked this. Okay, so I was I was talking to a friend in a cafe today, who is a you know, 40-something-year-old guy, very intelligent and loves music and stuff. And, and he asked me what I was doing this evening. And I mentioned my, my interview with you, and I told him a little bit about your work. And he's like, well, what's, what's the Chitlin circuit? And this kind of took me back because, you know, he's a, he's a very well-traveled, you know, well-informed guy, loves music. Um, but he was unfamiliar with this term. And I think a lot of people are, um, surprisingly, even people who really love American popular music. So first off, how did you become aware of the term? Uh, and and why did you feel the need to to, to tell the story?
0: Well, you know, I, I was fortunate enough as a music fan to live in Mississippi uh, in the late 90s and early 2000s. And that's where I wouldn't say I found the Chitlin Circuit so much as the Chitlin Circuit found me because, and look, the... the other people's trouble with the definitions totally understandable. I didn't grow up around the Chitlin Circuit. I didn't know about it until uh, I was in the the place where it's still happening and has uh, has thrived for many decades. I think part of the 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 lack of awareness out there in our culture uh, of the circuit is what makes it both such an interesting and such a vital topic. You know, to somewhat address your question of uh, the importance and why I I wrote the book. Um, you know, it it and first of all, just to give everybody a definition of it, it is the the network of black nightclubs, juke joints, theaters, any kind of performance venue uh that grew primarily from the south, but also in northern cities, cities out west in the US, uh in the early part of the twentieth century and evolved uh to suit, you know, big band jazz, swing combos rock and roll, soul music, all of these evolutions in, uh, in popular music took place on the Chitlin circuit. And that's another way of addressing the, the issue of what got me interested in it. It, it. The history of it, it comes up in the background of the stories of really major figures like, say, B.B. King, James Brown, Ray Charles, instantly recognizable icons, who I think your friend at the cafe would all be very familiar with. And their shared upbringing, their shared history transpired on the Chitlin circuit. Now, because it was a a segregated entity on the black side of that institution, it's not as well known in mainstream culture because it was, uh, you know, by design and function of, of American culture kept outside the mainstream. Uh, so that was its whole reason for being, and I think that's its reason for still being somewhat obscure, even in the eyes of, of, you know, really hip music fans who love tons of artists who got their start on the circuit.
1: Yeah, and I should clarify, too, uh, just so I don't seem like I'm trying to seem all cool. I mean, I, I had only heard of the term a few years ago, and I consider myself pretty well-versed in music as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it's this sort of weird underground history. right. But I was I was hoping you could you could paint a bit of a picture for my listeners and, and for me. So what kind of lives did these performers lead on the road in the segregated South, sort of mid mid-century, twentieth century uh America? Like what what was it actually like for them traveling from place to place and what kind of challenges would they face as black musicians?
0: Well, the real pioneer of the circuit in my book is a band leader from Chicago by the name of Walter Barnes. And he had a, a swing, probably 12 to 15 piece swing orchestra uh, that was real popular in deep south nightclubs in the in the 30s. So he made a ton of money and had you know nice tuxedos for all of his band. Everybody was done up beautifully. He had a bus for the band and a beautiful car. Uh, I think it was a Packard, if not a Cadillac, that he would travel from engagement. Uh, to engagement in, so here he is: is this resourceful, popular, well compensated, uh, sophisticated dude? This is this is not some you know loose toothed whiskey breath blues man we're talking about. I mean, this guy is the height of professionalism and uh, eh, musicianship. You know, pretty good, but you know, really the height of professionalism and sophistication. Who, in traveling these roads with his wife, who was light skinned had to put her in the back seat of the car and drive himself because of their shade differences. He being a darker skinned male and she being a lighter skinned female down south that was cause for uh police questioning and intervention. And so they basically put on the act of being a chauffeur and his, his client um riding the back roads of the South from gig to gig. Now, certainly there were other challenges for traveling musicians. That one's sort of cute by comparison to the other things that that happen to people. I mean, you know, buses full of musicians who get pulled over and harassed and searched and um, often discovered to be in possession of contraband, which would get everybody thrown in jail. Uh, I've heard stories of groups that were not all that prosperous who had to jam into a station wagon in order to make make the next gig with all their shit tied on the top of it, getting stopped, ordered by the police to take all their gear off, set up, set up the drum kit, get the guitars out, get the horns out, and and perform on the side of the road in order to, you know, ostensibly prove that they were musicians and uh, be granted the right to continue traveling. So there were all kinds of pitfalls along the lines of just making it from one gig to the next. Add to that the fact that you're usually traveling at night, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning after one gig ended. And you got stories of bus drivers falling asleep and crashing and killing people. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, there were racial, legal dangers, physical dangers to the travel. And it's not like today where you can just be riding down the road and you get a little bit sleepy and jump off the next exit and hit the Holiday Inn and get a good night's rest. I mean, there was nothing like that in black America. And so the black traveler, particularly the, you know, long distance interstate traveler really had to know his way around his or her way around. Where can we stop to get a bite to eat safely without being harassed? Where can we stop for a night's rest? Uh There was no guarantee in the very basic accommodations that we enjoy out on the road today and and really I mean the circuit is still going now and there there are still stories about um, oh, various uh, challenges and dangers that come up on the road.
1: One of the things I found fascinating about about your work is the idea that and I don't mean to put words in your mouth but but the suggestion that uh, so for to, to add some context I mean today when we think of a rock and roll band we generally picture about four or five guys Um, we sort of take that for granted that most rock bands are going to be around that size. Um, But you mentioned something about that sort of takes shape in the Chitlin circuit.
0: Absolutely. And as I mentioned, one of the the early pioneers was Walter Barnes guy, not terribly well known, but he was exemplary of what was hot on the circuit and in black popular music in the 30s, and that is a swing combo. Jimmy Lunsford uh, was another... Probably pretty recognizable name in jazz circles to this day, who made a lot of his living on the road in the South with a big band. But something interesting happened. Uh, there were a there was a convergence of you know cultural forces and economic forces right around World War II. So that was the time when there were rations on tires on gasoline, and so people traveling on the road in America had limitations on how far they were able to go. Uh, there was for a while a ban on interstate bus travel. Obviously, that's going to affect the ability of an 18-piece orchestra to get to the next show. Uh, so there are your economic forces, the rationing. The other side of it is right at that time, an artist by the name of Louis Jordan became popular. And his little group was called the Timpany Five, which obviously is not also not in the orchestra shape or mold. And the way that they you know, put a song over was completely different. You know, the big bands had their arrangers and their soloists and the conductor. And the singer was sort of off to the side. There was one big band singer that said he was like the roadie, you know, he'd be carrying in the speakers and the mic stands and the instruments. And talk about different from uh, the role of the vocalist in in, uh, today's music and music for the last 50 or so years. You know, that's kind of the position that the singer was in during the big band era. And then Louis Jordan comes along singing these brilliant, upbeat, fast rhyming, funny, clever songs with this very tight little band, you know, hitting the, the really swinging behind him. And so it changed the popularity, what was popular in music. Smaller bands became popular. And of course, there was enough economic incentive out there on the road to induce a lot of, of artists to start thinking in the small band framework rather than the big band. So that was kind of the big bang for rock and roll, Louis Jordan. And you listen to some of his, his records today. And uh, even though they were made in some cases, 15 years before uh, Elvis recorded. Yeah. You'd be hard pressed to say that that's not rock and roll, but of course, uh, you know, after, after Jordan, I mean, he was so overwhelmingly popular. Uh, this guy, he is the most brilliant figure, uh, for my money, in American music history. And still so underappreciated because he was primarily on the black side. Though he did cross over into into the mainstream. But uh, earlier, we talked about all of the great, genius, recognizable black musicians of the 20th century. B.B. B. Ray Charles, James Brown, Little Richard. All these folks who got started on the circuit. They they share not only the Chitlin circuit in their background, but they were all inspired by Louis Jordan. And so they didn't look to Duke Ellington for how to do music. They looked to Jordan. And that is uh, just a small way of, of describing this man's massive influence on music.
1: Well, you know the, the the expression "ahead of their time" is thrown around a lot, but I mean one of the fun things about reading a book like yours or uh, there's another music writer, Nick Tosches, um, you might be familiar with. Um, oh yeah. He wrote a yeah he wrote a book called Country, which is about the roots of rock and roll as well. And it's so much fun in the age of YouTube, just going back and, and actually listening to the to the songs as as you're reading along. And one thing that's absolutely amazing to me every time is you find these examples like Louis Jordan uh like Roy Brown, who yeah. it's like you, you you look the year at the year that this song was recorded and you can't believe it. It's like oh, well, know. you know, there there was rock and roll happening in the forties, in the late thirties in some cases. You listen to songs, it's like, well that's that's rock and roll. I yeah, mean it's no it's, it's kind of it. it's kind of stunning listening to some somebody like Roy Brown sing good rockin' tonight. Yeah. And then listened to, to Elvis's version. <laughs> you know, It's yeah. like, well, what's, what's going on here? And, and well, actually, that I wanted to ask you about that specifically. Like how, how do you, you mentioned a, a really interesting phrase in another interview where you talked about black inspiration and white capitalization. And yeah, sure. Th- this is a common theme in discussions around early rock and roll. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, interesting, always provocative question to ask people like, well, how far back can you date rock and roll? Where does it come from? Could you just speak to that for a minute like how 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 do you see like the roots of rock and roll? People often talk about it as this marriage of you know white country and black blues, but that isn't the whole story.
0: No, it it really isn't the whole story. That is a version of events that came out of uh, probably the first generation of rock and roll journalists uh, in conjunction with Rolling Stone magazine, Cream magazine. And so that's those are all white people. And they came along during the civil rights movement and naturally, you know, I, I have no doubt they were sensitive to it. I think that because of the conditions of, of that particular time and the political temperaments of, of the people who really coined rock and roll history, they overemphasized the collaborative nature of it between white and black. That sort of fit the theme of, of the good guys of uh, that particular era, the, the late 60s and early 70s. Um, the reality of it is that virtually, it's on one hand, it's pretty hard to find a lot of real country music, country and Western influences in what we know as rock and roll. Um, and I love country and Western. I love that era of music. I love Nick Tosh's book and all of his characters. It's not to slight them. It's just to objectively state what rock and roll is and where it really historically began. And, you know, I'd also don't have any beef with artists like Elvis, Buddy Holly, uh, Bill Haley, who listened to and dug black music, but rock and roll is two things. It is the style of music. Uh, As I mentioned earlier with the Louis Jordan template of a smaller band, you know, that hard rock and swinging style. Some artists really had that electric guitar turned up early if you want to put another recognizable sound stamp on early rock and roll that phrase you know rockin', that's a black phrase and artists like Cecil Gant you mentioned Roy Brown um Winone Harris uh Amos Milburn all of these guys that were at the top of the so-called R&B charts throughout the 40s they were all rockin and they called it rockin'. Uh it just wasn't recognized in the mainstream as as what it was at the time. Um, but yeah, that, that language, you know, there's the, as I said, there are two parts to rock and roll. There is the, that the sound of the music, right. But then there's the dissemination of it. So it's one thing to play a song. It's quite another for a million people to hear it. And the dissemination of that music really grew through white artists in the fifties. Um, you know, if Roy Brown, but if, uh, getting back to the origination issue, if Roy Brown had recorded Good Rockin' Tonight and sold 10 copies of it, I don't think it would have disseminated in quite the same way. I don't I don't think that Elvis would have covered it, Jerry Lee would have covered it. I don't know that that particular phrase, Rockin', would have just swept mainstream culture the way that it did. Because, yeah, you're right. You can listen to some songs from the 30s and say, man, that sounds like rock and roll. But if they didn't, if the songs didn't boom, you know, if they didn't get out to hundreds of thousands of people, then you don't have rock and roll. You don't have the trend, you know, the uh, you don't have the explosion aspect of it. And so I think that's where some of the racial confusion gets gets entered into the equation and Muddy's history, because that dissemination was never larger than with white artists adopting it. But the origination, and certainly the, you know, the early parts of the dissemination happened strictly in Black America uh, during a time of segregation. So again, to return to that theme, that's, that's in large part what kept it under wraps in its early days.
1: I'm I'm always fascinated by where terms like rock and roll actually come from, like where how, how and why people started calling it that thing. And when you say rock and roll, people will say, "Well, yeah, it was slang for sex, right?" Yeah. Um but where where was the earliest place that you found the word like rock or rockin to refer to music?
0: You know, in in a popular song, it would be like Duke Ellington Rockin' and Rhythm, and there would be a uh I'm just going straight off the top of my head here. Uh, that would probably be in the 20s, late 20s, early 30s. It was a beautiful song sung by, uh, uh, what was her first name, last name, Green. Uh, shoot, I wish I could think of her first name right now. Rockin' My Blues Away. Uh, that would have been a late 30s, early 40s. And you know, it just it just kinda of built up and built up until good rockin' tonight. By the time it got to, to Roy Brown though, the way that he used it, it was about more than fucking. I mean that's what it it started off as. It's just a, a simple code word to slip that action by the censors, you know, everybody could have a little chuckle at, Oh man, they're thinking about that. Yeah. Uh, rocking in rhythm, you know, rocking myself away, rocking my blues. Yeah, of course. That's how you get rid of blues, but <laughs> <laughs> But when when Roy used it, you know, it really took on more of a definition that we would understand today, you know, rocking out, get crazy, dancing, uh, wrecking the joint, getting drunk, getting wild, having a good time. And yeah, throw some sex in there too. But it became a you know a broader definition, closer to what we think of it as today through through Roy Brown, Good Rocket Tonight.
1: Just out of curiosity, I, I'm trying to remember if you addressed this in your in your book. Um, were there white people sneaking into these performances? Like was that even possible?
0: Uh, yeah, that would depend on the place. And of course, there were there were white people sneaking in. Um, probably the big ones that I'm familiar with are Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis. Jerry Lee having grown up in a small town in Louisiana where there was a, uh, really rockin and really pretty vital juke joint, uh, that was called Haney's big house. So, and and let me just go into a little bit of detail about the way that the circuit operated. Sure. So every, you know, every town in the deep South, every city in the deep South had its segregated black main street, right? Deal Street in Memphis is probably a, the best example everybody would would recognize. Uh, Rampart Street in New Orleans being another one. Um, but smaller towns had the same sort of a setup. There was a you know a white downtown and a black downtown, and the black downtowns pretty much everywhere you want to go were run by one kingpin type hustler who ran whiskey, gambling, prostitution and had a nightclub that could put all of these attractions under one roof. So these were the real fuses in the entertainment industry uh, on the circuit. And so there was a guy in Jerry Lee's hometown, um, last name of Haney, who ran Haney's Big House, uh, which was a big juke joint that all of the bands would come to. And, you know, I'm talking the same people that that we've been over, you know, Jordan, um, uh, Roy Brown was one. Uh, I was trying to think, oh, Eddie Cleanhead Vinson was another one I came across who played at Haney's. And so when Jerry Lee was a teenager, which would have been in the 1948 to 49 realm, somewhere in there, he and his cousin, who was a famous televangelist named Jimmy Swaggart, uh, would ride their bikes, sneak out at night and ride their bikes over to Haney's big house. And they would try and, they. I don't think they were permitted indoors inside the club, but they would, you know, peep through the slats, peep through the window, stand by the door and peep in when it opened. And they saw B.B. B. King in there. They saw Roy Brown in there. They heard the music coming out, rocking. They could see the place rocking on the outside. And Jerry Lee would say many years later, yeah, what we were witnessing was a whole new sound and style of music. What we heard was rock and roll. So again getting back to that issue of of the racial separation there's a classic white rock and roll performer who freely acknowledges that it was black music and that it was happening on the circuit. Uh similar thing with Elvis but in the city. So the city of Memphis was was a little bit different to you know to, to move in than uh, out in the country where Jerry Lee was but of course Memphis has Beale Street and Beale Street's one of the iconic uh, locations of American music, the place where the blues began, uh, home to many great blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, soul musicians. Gospel, of course, deserves to be in the mix as well. And uh, so, yeah, naturally, this, this activity is taking place in the, in the Beale Street neighborhood, which had plenty of nightclubs. It had upscale places. It had more bluesy places. It had gambling halls. Uh, But it was all about live entertainment in that town. And so there are various stories of Elvis catching um, one act in particular, uh, a guitarist by the name of Calvin Newborn, who is still alive and who was known for his, not only his guitar work, which is quite brilliant, uh, but also his acrobatics on the stage. He had a, you know, long guitar chord that he would roam around the nightclub in and would follow ladies into the bathroom and make them scream, you know, (laughs) go into the ladies' dressing room. And, you know, the way he tells it, he was just trying to get laid. But uh, there are a lot of witnesses, and I wasn't one of them. It happened 20 years before I was even born. There are a lot of witnesses I trust who say that the gyrating and the, uh, you know, the the Elvis pelvis stuff that really helped to... Make him a, a unique character in entertainment was was visible on stage at the Flamingo Room when Elvis used to sneak in there and, and dig all the activity. Uh, the interesting thing about that, again reflecting on our race division in uh, the perceptions of rock and roll, you got some of the deans of music writing um, who maybe indirectly um, disagree with the African American people who were there. And claim that they saw Elvis dig in this action and claim that that is where Elvis got his moves from. So, yeah, you got a generation of, you know, the civil rights, pro civil rights generation of baby boom white writers uh, who came along much later and say, no, nah, it didn't happen, or they overlooked the fact that it happened. And then you got a lot of African Americans who were there uh, who say that it did. So, again, you got some differences between the way people perceive this history of rock and roll in terms of. Uh, who originated it and who made it
1: popular? Those are two different things. Yeah, there was, there was like, mean, there was obviously there was a lot of uh, provocation of all sorts going on in these places. But one of, the, so I'm in, I'm in Thailand today speaking to you. Uh, which oh, cool. is the land? Which is the land of ladyboys and female impersonators of, of every sort? Um, and it turns out there were female impersonators playing on, on the Chitlin' Circuit, uh, including one little Richard who who had a who had a whole act um, as a as a female in, uh, interpreter or impersonator rather. What, what was going on there? Like how did was, was that like a leftover from vaudeville or like what, what how how can you explain that?
0: Boy, that's a tough question. How can I explain that? Usually I like to just say what happened and people are satisfied with it. But <laughs> <We> uh, <laughs> can go. That's,
1: that's fine. Yeah, go ahead. No,
0: no. I mean, the cool thing about Little Richard and uh, the difference between, you know, the reality of the Chitlin Circuit and then our perception of, uh, of early rock and roll. When he sang Tutti Frutti on the Chitlin Circuit, it started a Wap Baba Lu a Good God Damn. Tutti fruity, good booty. If it don't fit, don't force it. You can grease it up, make it easy. And uh, naturally that's not the way that it came out on uh, on record and on on people's radios. And I'm pretty sure Pat Boone didn't know what he was singing about when he covered that one. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe somebody not. will tell him. But uh, yeah, Richard Richard is part of a long tradition. This sort of this in a way bothered me when Prince died. Everybody kind of acted like he. Uh, invented gender bending or gender play in his, his stage presence. He didn't invent it. It was he was just the first one that millions of people saw on MTV. There's a difference. But yeah, Richard was part of a tradition. I mean, every one of these chillin' circuit joints. I mean, the uh, oh the Dewdrop Inn in New Orleans, um, Flamingo Room in Memphis, Club Handy in Memphis. Uh, the 81 in Atlanta even little small places like Macon Georgia where little richard came from had um not only music they had female impersonators they had shake dancers which we would today refer to as strippers and what really interested me about it was how i would say embracing these communities were of transgender entertainers back then uh it's so antithetical to hip hop, macho hip hop culture now, but you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend it was a, it was a picnic for a gay black man to dress up as a woman in the forties, but it had its place and it was accepted as, as a part of entertainment. People enjoyed it. Uh, there were very famous female impersonators in new Orleans and Chicago in particular big cities. Um, so there was a little bit more space for that kind of activity, and that could that was seen in Richard's upbringing as a as a viable option. <laughs> you, know? you want to get on the road and entertain and make your money. Throw on some high heels and a gown and <laughs> sing, some, <laughs> sing some torch songs. You know, people like that. Uh, but you know, as a, getting back to the point of how the the communities at large embraced this activity, I had a lot of older folks who are still alive now. Uh, and when I was doing research for the book in different communities now, not just one place, say, oh, yeah, you know, they, the term then was sissies. Uh, oh, yeah, the sissies would get together and the the sissies would have a beauty contest. The sissies had a dance night every week. Uh, they'd throw the sissy ball at some places. And anybody wow. can hang out and mix. And I would say also, you know, the sexuality in these places tended to be pretty wide open. Um, uh, it's not, again, to, to reflect on what I know of, of hip hop culture. I mean, that's, that's a pretty straight macho scene with some exceptions. There is, uh, there's definitely some sissy influence in parts of hip hop, but yeah, by and large, you know, it's a pretty macho traditional culture. Uh, but yeah, man, I mean, the sexuality in, in these joints could really be wide open. Uh, one band that I researched had a, you know, a, a gay male singer. A uh, bisexual female trombone player <laughs> <laughs> had all kinds of swingers in the band. I mean, I guess that's not so unusual. And it was not a huge deal. Um, you know, as I said, these the, this entertainment was usually connected to underworld activity, and it wasn't too far off. Jeez, I mean, you look even in the white realm of entertainment in the 19th and 18th century, Uh, Actors and actresses were considered on the same level of of prostitutes in many cases. The theater was seen as a sordid place. So I would say, getting back to your initial question of, well, where does this come from? I would say it goes back a really long way, uh, further than I did in uh, my research on the Chitlin Circuit's history. Uh, But it's kind of more interesting to me that uh, it's not accepted anymore, and it's such an uphill battle to gain. Any kind of acceptance, if if you're doing something other than, you know, a traditional performance, um, that's a recent thing, I would say. There's a much longer tradition of acceptance of gender fluidity uh, than there is a real rigid sense of gender.
1: Yeah, I wonder why that is. I mean, I, my sort of brain is inclined to think that it has something to do with, you know, Reagan and the evangelical sort of revolution in the U.S., but I have no idea. Although at the same time, I mean, you mentioned Prince, which, which is a really important point. Like, I, I read a lot of obituaries and stuff, and I'm trying to remember if, like, people acknowledged Little Richard's influence, obvious influence, on Prince's whole aesthetic, and I can't recall anyone mentioning that. That's a that's a really important point. Um,
0: that That was the op-ed I wanted to write, but go ahead.
1: Yeah, no, I was I was just gonna say like you know I'm wrestling with this question like is it you know I I guess Prince uh, I, I I guess I just I see that that a lot of people seem to sort of celebrate the the gender fluidity of Prince but that's one guy I think you're absolutely right I mean you know especially in 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 hip hop culture that kind of thing is very very frowned upon
0: most definitely most definitely and and in uh, Chitlin Circuit culture today I mean I don't think there's a lot of cross dressing I been a while since i've been out there but it's not nearly as big a part of the show as as it once was not nearly as big a part and you know the attitudes about sexuality are funny i mean one of the things that got me really hooked on current children's circuit music was this great song called candy liquor which is by a <laughs> black artist named marvin cease and it's That's a, song a great about title kind of... oh it's an awesome song i mean it's just like 12 minute odyssey about cunnilingus and you know that sort of activity a lot of black guys are are undercover about that i would say it's it's the kind of thing that um a lot more people do than a lot than they do discuss it <laughs> but yeah man, that was what got me into it i was like wow this is fascinating this, this you know totally outward um very exciting and, and fresh song about cunnilingus and the call it, I mean there's it's not a code like rockin' used to be, if you listen to the song, I mean it's all right out there <laughs> Let
1: me lick you up Let me lick Well, I know this is another broad question, and we don't have a lot of time left. But like, what in a nutshell, like what constitutes the modern Chitlin Circuit? Because like, well, there's no—I no, mean, it's, there's no official it's still, segregation anymore.
0: Right, right. Of course, no. It's it's much more of a self-selected group of of African American people, mostly in the South, but as as tradition, but also in big cities like Chicago, uh, Baltimore, um, Los Angeles, Oakland. It's. What they call grown folks is people who like the traditional blues of, say, a Little Milton or a Bobby Blue Bland, even though they're both dead. Johnny Taylor, uh, artists, people who really respond to that grown up middle aged sort of perspective on romantic misadventures. There's a lot of cheating songs. So the artists today are on the Chitlin circuit are older you know it's not about glamour it's not about what's new it's the opposite it's about who's relatable and who's classic uh you really got to be a warrior to be a hit on the shitlip circuit today there's really no yeah there's really no Johnny come lately in fact i remember when uh i believe it was tito jackson tried to break on and it just didn't happen it was it it, it didn't feel right to the audience it, it felt more like a desperate attempt to get something going than it did a really legitimate relationship uh, between the musician and his music with the crowd. And so that's your group today. It's it's still kind of what it's always been. Black, it's not mainstream. It's an audience that isn't being served by the mainstream sound or the mainstream business. It's made up of smaller venues, smaller radio stations, very tight-knit sense of shared history and community. Uh, revolving around, you know, summer festivals, uh, big homecomings like the BB King homecoming, uh, those sorts of events. So it's it's kind of what it has always been, but it's it's more for the aged crowd now. Whereas in the 40s and 50s, it's a very hip young crowd, very cutting edge. More of it's more of the the senior circuit, the legend circuit now.
1: What uh, what surprised you the most as you were writing and researching um, your book on the Chitlin Circuit?
0: Hmm. I would say the structure of the business of the Chitlin Circuit. You know, it, it happened against all odds. I obviously got in because I already knew about the music and I loved the music. I didn't know how this this entity, the Chitlin Circuit, existed. You know, how did the money flow? And to discover. That you know there was one hustler named Sunbeam Mitchell in Memphis who was tight with a hustler in Houston named Don Roby who was in turn tight with a hustler in New Orleans named Frank panier, and you just kind of unite these hustler figures across the map you see their their friendships, you see their their ventures going together. you see the artists that they developed and shared and promoted with one another and that to me in a i mean it was very much a DIY thing but it was totally across the map but that to me was very thrilling because i came of age in the uh in the media made stardom era of mdv and and big pop radio and to me that just seemed impossible um you know an artist was either just chosen and made king or they didn't exist but the chitlin circuit really was like a almost like a, a farm system where you had all of these, these old school entrepreneurs who ran the show and who developed the talent and helped grow the talent and break the talent big uh, because they managed all aspects of the business. It wasn't simply the top level. So all of that stuff was very thrilling to me to, to get to know And the personalities. I mean, these were really violent, colorful people. They were flashy. They were audacious you know how does a black man get to run a gambling racket in a in the segregated South? You know, and it's through a series of clever relationships, uh, a lot of charisma, uh, a lot of associations, and so to see how these these kingpins made themselves and made the circuit very exciting to me. Still, still feels good to think about today.
1: Unfortunately, we, we don't have time to talk about your, your second book, Beale Street Dynasty. It'd be great to have you back sometime to, to discuss that. Um, but what are you working on right now?
0: Well, right now I'm working on Memphis in the 50s and 60s. And the connections uh kind of the thing I do, you know, the connections between underworld culture and power. But that's at a thrilling time. It's It's from the rise of Elvis to the death of Dr. King. And, you know, Memphis, these things happen in Memphis and it's a basically a pretty small town that completely changed the world twice within a framework of about 14 years. So it's uh, that's that's the heart of the story right there. It's, it's a fascinating time and place that really broke big in American history.
1: Well, that's great. I look forward to reading it. That sounds fascinating. Um, have you heard the song Memphis in the Meantime by John Hyatt? No, I haven't. Oh, you got to look. That's my favorite song about Memphis. Just a great All song. All right. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'd love to hear that. Preston, thank you so much for your time today. This was an absolute pleasure.
0: Mine, Zachary. Yeah, you call me back any time and we'll talk Bill Street Dynasty.
1: I got some to say, little girl, you man like my style. Well, there you have it. There's my conversation with Preston Lauterbach, and I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope it gave you some inspiration to seek out some new rock and roll listening on YouTube. And if you'd like to to listen to some of the music that we talked about in today's episode, please go to travelsandmusic.com slash chitlin dash circuit, where you can find links and music and everything we talked about in today's episode. And you can also learn more about Preston Lauterbach and his very important and, and, uh, and very fascinating work. A quick reminder before you go that if you want to show your support for Travels and Music, the best way you can do that is to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating and review. As you know, they help a great deal, and they mean a lot to me. It always makes me smile when I see that someone is showing their support for the show, and they want to hear more of these these episodes, because I really have a lot of fun making them, and I hope to continue doing that. Once again, my name is Zachary Stockhill, and I'd like to thank you for spending part of your day with me today. And until next time, remember that life is short, so make sure you just enjoy the hell out of your weekend. I'll talk to you again next week. Walking with my baby, she got red big feet. She long, lean, and lank, and ain't had nothing to eat. But she's my baby, and I love her just the same crazy about that woman, cause Caledonia is her name, Caledonia, Caledonia, what make your big head so hot, ma, I love you, love you just the same, I'll always love you baby, cause Caledonia is your name.